In that home, he also you learned the rule of law. And I refer again that his father was a Pharisee. In Acts 23, verse 6, you will learn that, that his father was a Pharisee. Pharisees were, they were punctilious in stroking the T's and dotting the I's of every detail of observing law and authority. Now, I know that they had added man-made commandments. They brought in the Mishnah. They had added their own man-made interpretations and made them as important as the very Bible itself. There were corruptions to it, but they impressed upon the young that there is law to be kept. Paul learned that. And welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Gulliver. We're on the air today to bring you the gospel of the Lord Jesus again. And our Bible reading is Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6. I trust you'll join with us as we read the Lord's word here today. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Well, I think you can see here that the Lord did not give us a religion suitable for hypocrites. And I want to talk to you about a very private matter, the matter of private prayer. I don't think anyone would dare take on this subject if we did not have the precedent set by the Lord Jesus himself. In doing so, I remind you that I am your pastor, not your priest. I exhort you to get alone with God. I do not call you to meet with me or any other man on earth to hear your most secret heart petitions and confessions. We have already talked to quite a degree about family prayer and about praying as a church. These two ought to be in place. But firstly, we must pray alone with the Lord or else we'd be guilty of these hypocrites that are mentioned here in verse 5, who want to be seen of men. Nothing could be more despicable and horribly repugnant to a thrice holy God than this kind of hypocrisy, parading around in front of men with hearts that have no real interest in communing with God. Yet all men are capable of showmanship in religion to some degree. The great cure is 
to pray in secret. If you would be an example in prayer amongst men, then you must pray much in secret. The Lord sends us to the secret place. He calls it the closet. In Jewish homes, they had flat roofs, and upon them, chambers where people could resort alone with not another in earshot. The Lord, too, called for a shut door. This is what we must do. This is a habit that every Christian needs to develop and practice at all times. There is much value in secret prayer. Private prayer is a proof of the real state of your soul. The person who never has a thought to pause and pray alone, in good times and in bad, to go to the secret place to share the burdens of the heart, well, behold, he prayeth, can also be your own testimony to your own conversion. Behold, I prayeth, I have found a delight in talking with the Lord, who is real to me in the secret place. And that is a real test of the state of your heart. Private prayer also fosters a freedom of expression. As it is an antidote to the tendency to impress men in prayer, so it allows for freedom of words with the Lord. Prayer involves examination of heart. It involves confession of sin. Prayer involves committing to new paths of faithfulness where there has been a sense of failure. We're not always ready to acknowledge that failure in the public place. The mature Christian deals in the minutiae of the heart issues. This is not the idolatry or scarlet sins of the world, but the flies that so often spoil the ointment, and yet they have to be searched out and repented of, even with strong cries and tears. The best place to do this is in the closet, alone with God. Private prayer, of course, is real one-to-one -one fellowship with the Lord. It is most personal, and it is there that the Lord knows our needs. We are allowed to call God our Father, and time in private prayer will build that friendship with God. It will work a familial relationship of strong ties to the Lord. Uh, we know that Abram had that. He was called the friend of God. And if you would be the friend of God, you must frequent the closet, the place of private prayer. Private prayer is also very fruitful. The Lord promises here that it shall be a reward that is open. Your Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. The Greek word for this is apodomai, the exact payment or repayment. There is a Father's promise here, and behind that is God's faithfulness, and there's a future blessing in store. Maybe we will reap the benefits now, and maybe not. Maybe we will reap many of the blessings in eternity alone. To be seen of men and have the praise of men is the hypocrite's hope. To have the well done of God on the eternal day is the believer's hope. God's covenant promises to Abraham were fulfilled in his seed. God's promise to Moses were fulfilled without him entering the promised land. God's promises to Joshua were all fulfilled in David when the land was fully possessed. Above all, 
Israel was God's instrument to bring his son into the world. And none of the prophets, none of the Old Testament saints saw that fulfilled until the very day that Christ came, fulfilled his earthly ministry and fulfilled that mission for which he came into the world. So that is a great reward to have a part in the redemptive work of Christ. We pray for the Lord to fulfill his purposes in his church. One soweth, another reapeth, and God giveth the increase. God is very gentle with us in our praying when alone. We assume no office, we take on no rule or burden, but we come to our Heavenly Father to unburden ourselves. It is the most genuine type of prayer. It is also the most vital and necessary. It is the beginning of growth of the graft in the vine. The husbandman who sees these buds of spiritual life will expect much fruit in the days ahead. He is convinced that real life is present. This is the miracle of the change of heart that God works by his grace. I trust that you will be often found in the place of private prayer in this year in which we now have come, that you will run to the closet, that you will spend time with God pouring out your heart, and that you will enjoy that immediate reward and that everlasting reward of answered prayer from your heavenly Father who has promised that he shall reward thee openly. Let's unite in prayer now and pray for grace that we might spend time with God even today. O God, our Father, we realize that these verses, these words spoken by our Lord Jesus reveal to us that our religion is not for hypocrites, that this religion of Christianity is not for the phony, but for the genuine who will get alone with thee even in the mountaintop, in the closet, the prayer, the bedroom, to be alone with God in the secret place. And yes, for the believer, there is no sweeter place on earth to have God's presence and to be able to commune one to one. That thou hast given us this priestly ministry, not in temple or under a church steeple, but in our own hearts as ministers, as priests unto God, as princes and priests through the power of the gospel, and that we as sons of God may call thee Abba. And so, Father, today teach us to pray and give us grace to get alone with thee and to pour out our hearts unto thee. We thank thee for the promises that you give us and the encouragements that you give us that we might be men and women of prayer. And so grant that today thou wilt move thy people to spend time with thee, and that thou wilt meet with them and pour out thy Spirit upon them. Let thy favor and blessing be upon us. We thank thee for the grace of the gospel and for thy goodness to us. Minister to our hearts this day, we ask. Make this a day of prayer. In Jesus' name.
You're listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of our Free Presbyterian Church. This is Ian Gallagher. It is a joy to have you with us on the broadcast. I trust you've been blessed through this devotional and that you'll stay with us as we look at the early life of the Apostle Paul, the life that would march around the Mediterranean and preach the glorious gospel as the vessel of God, God's choice vessel to preach the glorious gospel. And that life had to be molded, had to be prepared in various unique ways. Today we're going to take a look at that. I trust you'll open your Bible with us at the book of Philippians chapter 3 as we let the Bible speak from the pulpit of our Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale. He was tutored by the learned Gamaliel. I mentioned that at age 13 a boy has to pass this bar mitzvah. Most likely at the age 13 he was sent to Jerusalem under the tutelage of the greatest of the great teachers, this man called Gamaliel. And this man Gamaliel was the grandson of the very famous Hillel. There were two schools in Judaism. There was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The Shammai were the radicals. They were the kind of Jew that you would imagine with the uh, shawl and the black uh, little hat and they would look everything Jewish from head to toe. That's Shammai. The school of Hillel were more broad-minded. They were able to look at things in a more open fashion. Gamaliel was a teacher of that school. And under Gamaliel, Paul would have learned the law and its application under a broader context than the other school. And in that teaching, he would have learned the power of reasoning. He would have sat on, in on the question-answer sessions. That was very often their form of teaching and their debates. And he would have been uh, meticulously schooled in the finer points of Jewish law. He would have known it through and through. And so... With this exposure to Greek, to Hebrew, to the legal teaching, Paul was a man that was able to rub shoulders and converse with almost any man at their own level. There's a text in the New Testament that I must say that I've always had some difficulty in trying to interpret. People have asked me, and I've tried to give the best answer I could, but I've not always probably given the best answer. It's that text where Paul said that he was all things to all men, that he might win some. You might want to open it in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. I'll not drag this out, but I think it is of such relevance here, but, and this background of Paul's youth threw such light on this that really makes it a very simple answer. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. 
For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, be not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I have made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. Now, please know that this does not mean that Paul changed his standards or his doctrines depending on whom he was talking to. Paul did not behave like the chameleon, the little reptile that, depending on what foliage he's under, changes color. Truth doesn't change. It's fixed. The gospel doesn't change, and we know that Paul did not sell it out. But such was his exposure and his upbringing that this man Paul could meet a Jewish scholar and talk to him at his level. Or he could meet a Greek philosopher, head filled with the poets and secular philosophy, Paul could equally converse with him. Or he might meet a Roman statesman, he himself being a Roman citizen and well-versed in Roman law, could equally talk with him. Or he could meet the tradesman, especially the tent maker, and Paul could sit down and talk one-to-one -one with him at his own level and feel very much at home with him. It's like someone going through the airport, and you meet someone from your own country, and you speak with him in, in, in very familiar terms because you were born in the same area, you knew the same people, and so on. And then you leave that person and you go off to a business meeting. Now, none of those people in the business meeting know that fellow or his experiences, but they know the business, and you know the business that you're in, and then on your way back, you ride home in a taxi, and the taxi, he knows the city, and you know the city, and so you can talk to him. And Paul said that he was all things to all men. In other words, he could talk small talk. But he obviously brought in the gospel. He could talk tense and talk about the tabernacle of the body. He could talk the word of God from Moses, but talk about Christ who Moses spoke of. He could talk to a Roman who had citizenship in the greatest empire of the world and tell him, but ah, you need citizenship in heaven. And so he could be all things to all men in that sense. There are those who are of an ecumenical mind and they use such a passage and they say, well, you're a fundamentalist preacher, but uh, Paul, he was all things to all men. And you need to be broad-minded, and you need to be more ecumenical in your outlook. And you need to be, you know, give a little room for compromise. I assure you that you cannot write compromise over 1 Corinthians 9. That is compromising the gospel. Paul said that he would not preach another gospel. That though an angel came preaching another gospel, let him be anathema. And so we know for sure that what Paul had in mind here, it was not compromising the gospel. He was all things to all men because truly he was 
because of his exposure being a, a, a native of Tarsus, of the Greek world, being a Hebrew boy, having sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and then a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen was like having a passport, and a passport that you could go almost anywhere and have full protection under the Roman Empire. And Paul used that when his life was in danger, and he knew he would not get a fair hearing with his own countrymen, the Jews. He appealed to Caesar. And they had to take him to Rome, which he was released the first time, but the second time didn't work out so well. He ended up losing his head. But as a Roman citizen, he had a passport and protection and rights and privileges. Now I say again, all of these things he counted but dung when it came to salvation. He didn't depend on being a Greek or a Hebrew or a scholar or a citizen of Rome when it came to salvation. He didn't trust any of those. He looked to the cross. But when it came to serving the Lord, he put every one of them on the altar. And he used every bit of what he was and who he was and the gifts and talents that God gave him. And as opportunity arose, he used his Greek. As opportunity arose, he used his Hebrew. As opportunity arose, he used his tent making. His life was on the altar to serve God. Paul did not bury his talents. He did not say, I am saved by grace. I don't need to do anything. Not at all. And while he counted those things as worthless for salvation, he put those things to work as a laborer in the Lord's vineyard. Can you say that tonight? I fear that in too many evangelical circles, there are people who say, but I'm saved by grace. Therefore, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to lay my life on the altar. But if you want to be a vessel, you have to lay all on the altar. Christianity demands your all. Your reputation, your time, your talents, your skills must all be dedicated for the gospel's sake. That's what the church is. The church is a composite of all the gifts and the talents that are made up in the body of the local church. Your gifts, my gifts, your talents, as we combine them together to serve the head, but only as we lay them on the altar and serve in practical, real Christianity. Otherwise, it means nothing. Membership in the church, it means nothing if it doesn't include all of you. When you handed in your membership form and said, I want to be a member in this church, it didn't mean that you just wanted to have your name on a list or the right to attend a church for an hour once a week. It meant that you would be a part of the labor, of the vision, of the burden, of the service of the local church. And if you have talents and gifts, and by your birth and your heritage and your upbringing, you have a contribution to make to the local church, you must put them on the altar for God. To do less is to say, yes, I want to be a member, but with these reservations.
I don't think that's what God intends. And some think that if they give a little bit of money and an hour a week, that's all that membership involves. And alas, the church is weak and sickly, and we wonder why the laborers are so few. I think we have a lot to learn from the Apostle Paul here. A dedicated life for the gospel is so important. It's true also in the schoolroom, young people. As we have looked at the early life of the Apostle Paul, of what God did with that raw material, and by grace used his life, are you praying about what God's going to do with your life? And as you struggle tomorrow at the school desk with math and science and history and PE, perhaps, and all that comes into school life, why do you want to be a good student? Why do you want to excel? Is it just for your own honor or to please mom and dad? Surely as a Christian young person, there's a much higher motive that whatever God may be pleased to do with your life, that it's on the altar, and that now or later one day, God will take your life and use it for his glory. That's what we learn here as we look at this young man, Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle, channels only blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Is your life on the altar? Minister, me, is my life on the altar? Do you have in this church a pastor, a preacher whose life is on the altar? Or am I more interested in recreation and in pampering the body and in looking after number one than in serving the Lord? Elders, is your life on the altar? Are you out and out giving your all for Christ? Deacons, Sunday school teachers, members, your name's on the list, but are your seats empty? Where are you on prayer evening? How many men will be here on Saturday night? When we ask for that second mile, how many will take it? This is practical Christianity. There are exceptions. Some don't have the health to do it. Some may be out of town on that particular time, but not all the time. Paul's life was on the altar. Is yours visitor? friend of this congregation, perhaps afraid to take the step of membership. I don't know what's keeping you back. It is not generally my policy nor the elders of this church to go to you and say, why are you not yet a member of the church? If you have strong reasons, I understand. But if you don't have a strong reason before God, I pray that this message of Paul tonight will stir your heart. I pray that God will speak to you and that you'll be moved, not just to be a friend of the church, to be a living servant of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for This is Pastor Ian Golliher. Thank you for joining us on the program today. As we give thanks to the Lord this Thanksgiving season, I want to thank you for your faithful listening to this program and for those who have supported with their gifts. It's timely to consider supporting this program with a Thanksgiving gift. 
We are presently airing these programs on 10 stations right across Canada. Some are on Sunday mornings, and others are Monday to Friday. From time to time, we remind you as our listeners that if you are blessed through these programs, please consider helping us with the cost of airtime to get the gospel out to you and throughout much of Canada. You can check out our donation button on our church website, ltbs.ca. For all the information on how to donate by e-transfer, PayPal, or by mail-in check, go to ltbs.ca. The mailing address is LTBS 18790, 58th Avenue, Surrey, B.C., V3S 1M6. Thank you for your support, large or small. May the Lord bless you and keep you in His care, and above all, save souls through the gospel of His Son, as we preach it on these airwaves each week. For information or pastoral help, go to our website, ltbs.ca, or just give me a call at 604-897-2040. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. Have a blessed Thanksgiving week.